Okay, well, I all right. An example of poor parenting is when we burden a three-year-old child with the decisions of the family. If we are burdening them with calling the shots in the family and making decisions for an entire family, that's an unreasonable burden to put on a three-year-old. Families with Dash offers a balanced parenting approach from generations of tried-and-true methods combined with research and insights from today. I'm Amelia Murdoch, founder of Dash Into Learning, the popular education company and homeschool mom of four. And I'm Joan Landis, licensed clinical mental health counselor, mom of seven adult children, and grandmother of 16 and counting. And I happen to be Amelia's mom. So what are we going to talk about? We want you to get the benefit of our decades of clinical experience and real life in the family trenches. We offer unique and actionable insights about family life, marriage, and homeschooling. Join us on Families with Dash and become confident and happy parents. Hello, we are here again, and I've been looking forward to this all week. Last week's discussion was super enlightening and yeah we were we were talking about attachment how Mm -hmm. important that is in kids just as a reminder I'm Amelia Murdoch and this is Joan Landis yep I'm I'm the young mom in the trenches (laughs) and this is Joan and I'm the clinical mental health counselor mother of seven grandmother of 15 Uh, so I have some different perspectives and together we explore and uh Give, give some great pointers to especially moms that are in the trenches. Yeah, and just a kind of full perspective, big picture perspective from my mom. And then I'm doing homeschool with my four girls. So I'm kind of, I have this other yeah. perspective. So <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay, so last week we talked about some of the advantages of having your child be more attached, properly attached, securely attached to parents uh, rather than dependent on peers. And so today we're going to talk a tiny bit more about that and then also give some strategies and how to uh, help your uh, babies and toddlers be properly and securely attached and how to kind of understand a good balanced approach to that. This is not necessarily, you know, that they should be like little monkeys on you until they're 14 years old. But so, so we're going to talk about that, and then another podcast we will talk about properly attach and make a secure attachment with your elementary grade kids and your middle schoolers, and then we'll have another podcast talking about high school. So that's kind of what we're looking at today. Yeah, and I think um, we want to kind of give the broad kind of reasons and theory behind why this mm-hmm. is so important, and then also we want to give you specifics, super specifics that you can use. Actionable. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Every day. So that's kind of our goal. Right. Right. I mean, it's easy to kind of pontificate, right? And every every parent's like, okay, but what does that look like? What? How, how does that work? And so we really are going to get granular with that even today. Yep. So, okay. So one advantage of having children that are not attached to their peers and not dependent on their peers is a surprising, a very surprising benefit, which most people would not know. And that is it helps those children to be resilient to bullying. Yeah, this is really, really, I just think this is so eye-opening when I was learning about this. I think it's like the answer to society's issue. Right. Well, it certainly can help because we as parents and children, uh, we can't control everything that happens out there. You're always going to have some children that are struggling and will act out with bullying. Okay. 
That's just what will happen. If it doesn't happen at a school, it may happen on the street. It may happen at the playground. Church. Right, right. Church, right. That, That actually can happen. So the cool thing about being properly attached to your child is it makes them resilient to bullying. Okay, how does this work? So if your child is looking to the parents for their cues, looking to their parents for their comfort, all right, um, that their parents are acting in two fundamental ways as a safe haven, okay, a safe haven, which means if something out there in the big world, wide world is spooky or it hurts the kid, the child knows to run to mom and dad. That means mom and dad are working as a safe haven, and that is actually very important for a proper attachment. You'll, you'll see that from very little, very young stage, right? Yes, but my clients that are uh, that are really struggling, very often I will ask them this question early on. When you were upset as a child, who did you go to? Mm-hmm. Many times the clients that are struggling, they'll say, nobody, <coughs> or my sister, or my dog, or my room, or my video games. They are not properly attached. They are not looking at their parents as a safe haven. So actually having a child, you know, fall from the monkey bars and run to you, that's a good indication that you're doing a pretty good job, mom. Take advantage of that. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a beautiful, very natural way that nature has said, go to your safe place. That's your mom and dad, and they will help you. Okay. That's the, uh, that's the safe haven. So what happens is when a child is not attached to their parents, The default is they have to attach to somebody or something. And very often that will be the peers. Okay. So now they're attached to their peers. They're dependent on their peers for approval. They're dependent for social support. Yeah. It's kind of like that analogy we gave last week on the ducklings. Yeah. It's like if the mom isn't there, they will imprint Mm -hmm. and that will be where they get their cues. Exactly. And that's nature's way of trying to provide some kind of support. Yeah. Right. And so the problem is that since their peers are, you know, undependable, they're fickle, they can be often cruel, then when those peers bully them, that child has no safe haven to go to. The peers were their safe haven, and so they feel alone in their pain. And that is actually, that's a recipe mm. for suicidality. Okay, mm. So when teenagers are in pain and feeling alone in their pain, not supported in it, then it's very easy for them to be overwhelmed to be very impulsive and just want to escape and run from the pain, a.k.a. end of their life. Right. And the problem with peer dependency is that a peer can never lead them correctly. It's like the blind being the blind. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. The, their peers are young. They're immature. They're trying to find their own way. And it's it's just not a sustainable, it's not a, it's really not a safe type of dependence to, to create. So, so I think the rise of peer dependence that we've seen since World War II, and this is well documented, and the suicidality, which has taken a huge jump in teens since the late 70s, I think can be attributed to a great degree on the, the peer dependence, that they don't have the safe haven of the tribe or, you know, as far as their extended family, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, those things have been damaged since World War II, and so they feel very alone in their pain and don't know what, what to do with that. And I think we know children now are more impulsive than they used to be. And so that's why they, they get desperate and take those rash actions. Right. Okay, so, so we just wanted to kind of share with you a huge benefit of having a secure attachment with your child, that it's worth putting this time in early on and through their lifetime that, that this type of relationship can 
if not suicide proof, at least make it so that the chances of them turning to that because they have been rejected by their peers or bullied by their peers is much, much reduced, much reduced. In fact, I can tell you that when my clients, my clientele, very rarely do I have a client and clients that have been homeschooled because they have that close relationship with their parents. Now, does that mean every homeschool parent is perfect? Of course not. And some homeschool parents stress their kids out and, you know, the kids can get anxious. But as a rule, I see way, way more clients that are coming from a more of a public school system or, or a very competitive private school system where they have had to become peer dependent in order to function. The time is just when you're home with the kids. Right. It's just makes the attachment happen easier. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. And but there's ways you can focus on attachment and be public schooled. And yes. Something that's, but I think you have to focus on it and understand this. Yes, you have to. You have to understand what's going on. You have to be very intentional about what you're doing as a parent to create and to foster that that connection and attachment with your child. Okay, so um. So you talked about safe haven. Yep. And, and a secure base yeah, is the other, right, other part of it. Right. The other, the other part of uh, healthy attachment in children is the parents need to function as a secure base. And what that means is child feels like mom and dad are pretty consistent. You know, they're pretty uh, fair. I don't really like using that word for a lot of reasons, but, you know, that they have a sense of uh, balance and safety. Um, then those children can depend and trust that relationship and they that becomes a secure base from which to explore the world. And so properly which is, which is the goal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do want them to eventually become independent. You right? You really do. You don't the whole point of attachment is not to create an eternal codependence, but you have to do this in the right order because children who are anxious and don't feel properly attached, they're the ones that are super clingy later on. And if they're not clingy to you, they're going to be clinging to their peers you have to understand is this proper attachment is the first order of go. And so you want your child to be dependent properly on attached. You. Yes. And mm-hmm. it'll show by being dependent when they're babies, toddlers. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about that. So really what you want is early on, you want to foster a healthy dependence on you as the parent for babies. That is, that's what you want them to do. You want them to be able to trust that when they are distressed, you, the mom or the dad or grandma or whoever the primary caregiver is, uh, can help, can meet their needs. In a predictable way. In a predictable, nurturing way. Yeah. Right. And when they can have that sense of trust, that's a huge milestone. Milton Erickson, the very, very world-famous psychologist that actually watched children for years and years and developed the, um, you know, the different stages of growth for them, said that the first the first task that a child, a little baby needs to master is trust versus mistrust. Can I trust that my needs will be met when I am distressed? And so that that's the first order of the day. Um, so that's a healthy dependence. Then over time, uh, if the parents are functioning as a secure base and a safe haven, then that child can explore the world. And they're going to become more and more far afield as they get older and older. But if something happens that stresses them, like bullying or physical injury or failure, they know that they can come back to mom and dad and have that support. And that that fosters their independence from a safe base. Then, hopefully, sometime in young adulthood, they become fully independent. Now, the whole goal of life is not to remain independent your whole life. 
The goal of life is to be able to develop your next primary attachment, your next relationship, which would be with your spouse, and create an interdependent relationship, which is a higher level of functioning than independence. You really don't want two independent people trying to function as as a family unit. You have to be interdependent. And in order to be healthily interdependent, you have to be able to lead. Otherwise, that means you have to have been independent, okay? So you get a woman that has been out, she's paid her own bills, she's, you know, been able to live with some roommates, figure it out, have some kind of career or, you know, whatever, something like that. She feels independent. Then when it's time to make an attachment with her uh, spouse, then she knows I don't have to be codependent on this person. I can leave. If things get bad, I can leave. I'm capable. I'm capable. Right. And that's super important. Otherwise, if you only go from being a dependent child and you haven't become independent and then you form your next primary attachment, you don't go from instead of becoming healthily interdependent, you become codependent. And that's, that's not what we want. So you really do want your children to have a safe base so that they can become independent so that they can form a healthy attachment in the next, their next family. Their family of creation is what we call it. So how do we foster this attachment in our babies and toddlers? Okay. First step. Right. So with babies, there's tons of information about this. This is very pop psychology right now, so I'm not going to stay here a long time and talk about what you need to do to attach properly to your baby. But safe to say, you know, you need to um, let that child be part of your life and on your body. Hold that, hold that child, cuddle with that child. I'm a fan of co-sleeping. I think that connection is very, very important if that's comfortable to you and your spouse. You know, do it in ways that are safe. There's a lot of uh, material on that. But just that time together, that skin-to-skin contact, that body-to-body, that that touch-pressure relationship, is very, very important to a child. That's really where a lot of their brain is functioning. A a little baby does not have the neuronal connections to their prefrontal cortex yet. So it's the lower levels of their brain that are functioning. So it's the, you know, we can talk about this another time, but it's it's the lower levels, the body systems of their brain that is uh, activating a lot of what's going on. And so your body system has to communicate to their body system. Because they're not rational. You can't. No, no. <laughs> you can't understand. That no, they're, they're not going to be able to reason and, and things like that, prefrontal cortex. Now, that doesn't mean they can't learn. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, they can learn. We know they learn tons and tons, but it's a different form of learning mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily reasoning with words, right? Of course. One of our favorite books is this book called Hold On to Your Kids by Gordon Neufeld. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he says that I really liked is how to invite dependence on the baby with your baby. Yes. And that's what you want. You want them to be dependent on you. And one of the ways is to say, here, let me carry you. I will be your legs. You can depend on me to move you. And I thought that was, you know, rely on me. I will keep you safe. And so that's one reason that this is important. Right. This healthy dependence. You meet their needs. Little babies need their, they need their needs met. It's not spoiling them or ruining them. It actually is creating that safe base that they can explore the world and and also i mean the safe haven so that they can come back to you and depend on you to meet their needs so if they're hungry you feed them if they're right so so those are basic things don't okay can i just tell you i'm, I'm gonna true confession here <laughs> okay let's hear it okay this was how dumb i was as a new new mom oh 
Okay. 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 This is embarrassing, but yeah, tell, tell everyone how old you were as a new mom. Yeah. First, okay. So, so I got married as an 18 year old and I had my first baby at 19 and I didn't have a lot of experience with babies, but I had a lot of experience with horses and dogs. <laughs> you, you didn't like babysitting, but you liked oh, riding horses. Oh, I didn't like babies. No, <laughs> I didn't like babysitting. Yuck. I was not a, I was not a maternal type of person, um, until I had my own. Then I really loved them. But, um, Okay, so so I didn't have a lot of experience with the babies, and I knew a lot about horses and dogs, and so and I, I came from a family that was very old school. Uh, my grandfather basically the rule was nobody in my family cries. I mean that was you know really old school. You yeah. just don't cry. I'm not saying that that's horrible for his time and place for their time and place. That was a survival technique yeah. for pioneer type people. Okay, you couldn't just sit and cry and emote and say please validate my emotions. No, you know. The, the harvest the, would go bad. Right. The, have no food. Right. <laughs> the, right, the, right. Exactly. So it, for their time and place, um, that was a survival technique. But just that was just telling you that was the culture that I came from. So I brought home my first baby. And we, I actually was living with my parents. My husband and I were living with our parents at that time. And I had my first baby. And the very first night we got home, I went to sleep. You know, we had the baby go to sleep, put it in the crib. So it's like a two-day-old baby. Yeah, probably a three-day-old baby. <laughs> right, right, right. And so put it in the crib, and which was in our bedroom with us. And I said to my husband, now, if the baby cries, don't pick it up. Because I'm not going to train that baby to cry and get whatever it wants. And so we laid down. And after a while, the baby started crying. And I held my husband down. Don't get it. We're, we're not going to train that baby to just get whatever it wants when it cries. I'm just embarrassed to say that this is where <laughs> I was. You were thinking it was like a dog right. whining outside of the door. Right, right, thing, right. But Instead not. of this little being that had these major needs that needed to be met. You know, anyway. And so, anyway, the baby cried. And the baby cried for probably mm, five minutes. And then I heard a little knock at my door. And I'm like, yeah. And my hus- my mother said through the door, are you going to pick up that baby or am I? <laughs> and I'm like, but, but I didn't want it. I didn't, I didn't want it to like learn that every time it cried, she said, pick the baby up. <laughs> <laughs> so, <great. laughs> so listen, people, you can learn a lot just because you don't know a lot when you're, you know, first, first doing this, that's okay. But wasn't I thankful for my mother that modeled that for me? And then as a young mother, I kind of panicked when my baby would cry. I'd be like, ah, ah, the baby's crying. And my mother modeled for me, hold that baby, cuddle that baby. And that modeling was so important. So in a way, we'd like to kind of model this for other moms, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So meet their needs. And that is in, going a, in a predictable way. Yes. Same and, way. Right. That's something really important, too. That baby needs to m- know that very predictably their needs will be met. It's not sometimes this, sometimes that. Routine is really a good thing that helps them to be able to attach to you, to feel like they can depend on you. And so that predictability is very, very important. Nursing, very, that's a good thing. If you can nurse your child, that will help them. If not, and you're feeding them with a bottle, cuddle them. Don't prop the bottle. You know, I have been a bottle propper in my life. It was a survival thing, but that's not the ideal. Okay. So I am confessing all this stuff. (laughs) So do you want to go on to toddlers? Sure. Well, I think it was interesting. You were talking about an important part of attachment is the child identifying with the parent. Right. And that's not something that I've really heard. Right. And so. Okay. Let's talk about that. As as a toddler, that's where you start identifying. Right. 
Right, right. So a toddler is doing some really important tasks and they are watching mom and dad and deciding whether they want to identify with mom or dad. And research shows that for a child to identify with mom or dad, in other words, that I want to grow up to be like you, and even identifying gender roles, okay? The parent needs to have two qualities. And one quality is that parent needs to be benevolent, okay? So they need to see that parent as generally kind and loving. Compassionate. Compassionate, right. But the other one is they need to see that parent as being strong and having strength, mm-hmm. okay? So if the parent is weak but really kind, there's a good chance that that child will not identify with that parent. Or if the uh, parent is strong but angry or mean or cruel or not meeting your needs, again, they don't want to identify with that, right? And that sets you up for a big train of events later on in their adolescence when they're like, well, what is my identity? Who do I want to grow up to be like, Mm -hmm. right? So, So the work you're doing as a parent with these little toddlers, super important. And so part of looking strong and benevolent, okay, would be something like this as an example. Okay, so uh, maybe you see your child jumping up on the table, okay? And you have a boundary that says, no, you cannot walk on the table. This is not what we do in our family. And so you say to your son, you know, Johnny, get off the table. Johnny looks at you, laughs, and just keeps running around on the table or jumping on the table. Okay, so what you do as a parent to be both strong and benevolent is you jump up immediately, okay? You don't sit there and go, Johnny, Johnny, I told you to get off the table. Johnny, get off the table. I told you a million times. No, 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 you do not do that. That makes you look weak. He looks at you and says, oh, I can ignore you, mom. You're weak. So you have to exert some authority here, and you jump up, and you take that child by the body, and you're not particularly gentle and soft. You take them with great firmness and quick. Yeah, the timing. Quick. Timing is a big deal. Right, right. Don't wait around. Don't wait around. Don't let them. You, you, have, to, you have to do this within mm, about four seconds is, your, is your, the time that you have before they will connect your command with their disobedience or their you know, ignoring of you. And so um, you've got to jump up. I always say parenting is not for the lazy. You can't just sit on the couch watching TV and be an effective parent. You have to jump up and take care of business. So you jump up, you grab their little body firmly, and you, you know, take them rapidly and set them down. And you're not particularly gentle, okay? You're firm. You are firm. And now you're not yelling. You're not shaming them. You don't have super angry face, okay? You're like, no, I'm taking care of business. Now, what you can do later is connect with them with a the benevolence. You can talk to them later and explain, listen, that's a family rule, blah, blah. And then, of course, hopefully you have put the groundwork in place where you've made that connection beforehand, mm-hmm. you know, that they feel connected. They feel like they can trust you. You've read books to them that day. You've right. fed them food. You've cuddled them. And so that <laughs> connection has to occur before the correction. Otherwise, they will reject you. Yeah, it's kind of like if your child was about to run into the road, are you going to say, don't run in the road? Right. I've, you know, let's talk about this. Right. No, no. No, no, You're going to jump up. Right. And take care of business. Right. And it's the same thing in with normal obedience to anything else. Right. If the child knows that you mean business. Right. And they have that boundary. You've said that. They're going to listen when it's the road. Well, and they're going to trust you. And they'll trust you. They will trust you. When you say something, they will trust that something will happen. 
that they can't just ignore you That's and really good point. right. So this is how they they learn to trust you is when you give a command or when you give a, a request, they must you know they must comply on some level, even if it's you helping their body to comply. That that helps them to trust. Oh, when mom or dad say something then that's very important. And that helps them attach to you. Now, what about when people say, like, well, I, I need to listen to my kids what they want in an instant like this? Okay, well, I all right. An example of poor parenting is when we burden a three-year-old child with the decisions of the family. If we are burdening them with calling the shots in the family and making decisions for an entire family, that's an unreasonable burden to put on a three-year-old. When they think they're in charge. Right. When they yeah. have to. Right. And the thing is, is that if you burden a child like that, that's pretty terrifying for them because they know I'm small. If I, if mom and dad, if I can't, you know, if mom and dad can't handle me, they're big and strong. What? I have no one to depend on. Right. Yeah, it's like nothing feels safe because they know that they need to depend on, on others for survival. And so, yeah. Another, another thing I, I read somewhere, I can't remember where I read it. They were saying if... You know, if you think about your sons, if they can just not listen to their mom. I, I told you this. You told me this? Yes, if I they did. they can just not listen to women. Right. How will they see women as an adolescent, exactly. as a young adult? Mm-hmm. I don't have to listen to them. That's right. No one ever said anything would happen if I don't listen to women. Right, right. And what can that lead to? Lead to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I like this way that my mom was talking about this where, hey, guess what? You know, a firm boundary doesn't have to be spanking. Oh, right. Not that is For not sure. the end result. So this was an example she gave where, hey, guess what? You know, you're quick. Mm-hmm. It is firm mm-hmm. and you have some physical surprise there, mm-hmm. but it's not harmful. It's Mm-mm. not painful. Mm-mm. It's not that. And then whenever I set a boundary like this with my kids, mm-hmm. you know, they'll be upset after because, mm-hmm. whoa, this was this was a yeah, big deal. Kind of a shock. And I have to think about this. Mm-hmm. And this is upsetting a little bit, but it's pretty short lived mm-hmm. and I can easily go and connect with them mm-hmm. because I didn't get angry. Mm-hmm. I didn't spend five minutes screaming at them. Right. I can easily, I'm calm. I can mm-hmm. go over and say, hey, you know, I know that was tough. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry this had to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. in the future, mm-hmm. will you want to listen to mom? You mm-hmm. know, this is stuff that's going to happen. And now let's read a book and let's go get a snack. And that kind of thing is how I kind of handle that. Right. Right. And, and one of the ways that I kind of tell my clients, as a parent, you want to be an iron hand in a velvet glove. So you're not harsh, but, you're not a pushover. but there's firm, there's yeah. firmness, but there's softness and gentleness really un- until a certain point where it's like mm, firm, it's, it's going to be happening. And at this age, I mean, there's only so much talking you can do with a three-year-old. Like I can't sit there and rationalize with, you know, when they're upset and screaming and wanting to go back in the store or whatever like right. there's only so much right right conversation i can have right and and, and in fact i always laugh because i'm like some parents are like well you know my child's really upset and tantruming then you know i just explain to them and we talk about it and i'm like you know what there's a lot of adults a lot of adults when they're tantruming and upset they can't process either when, when my husband says okay calm down yeah i'm no, like no that doesn't go no. well. that doesn't work for me right Right. It has no effect. Right. <laughs> and and so so to ask a three year old to process logically and to reason when they're upset really is an undue burden on them. The best thing to do is to just take care of business, make sure they're safe, make sure that they have listened to you and are obedient, and then wrap your arms around them later, you cuddle, you talk to them when they're back to baseline. Yeah. Yeah, but right in the moment to yeah. 
Well, and it's not efficient because it's like, yeah, you're going to be spending buku amounts of time and effort trying to reason with a three-year-old, yeah. and the three-year-old doesn't. These long scripts that I've seen given oh, man. to parents, I'm like, if way I too have, many words. I have four kids. Right. If I'm talking that much about every little issue, right. I'm going to be blue in the face talking all right. day, and I'll be so exhausted. Very frustrating as a parent. Sometimes it's like, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Now. Yeah. <coughs> and then the kids actually, the, the kids actually appreciate it. So can I tell my story of the dairy cows and the fences? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, interestingly, you know, boundaries. Let's talk just a tiny bit about boundaries. We weren't going to really go into it too much. But um, boundaries are very important for kids to, be, to, to trust you and to, to feel like that you are going to care for them. And this is, this is kind of how it works. Dairy cows. Dairy cows, where we get our milk. There's a reason that that saying, you know, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, because dairy cows are notorious for pushing through their boundaries, okay? Pushing on the fence, taking their horns and hooking the fence, trying to kind of trample over it to get to other pastures. That's kind of their thing. So interestingly, if you are a dairy farmer, and I have asked, I have a friend that's a dairy farmer, I've asked him this, and he said, yes, this is true. If you have poor boundaries if you have bad fences okay you've got rickety fences and the cows inside those fences they're walking around kind of testing those boundaries testing those fences if they are able to knock it down and trample over that fence and escape then for a very long time they will circle that perimeter and test and test when you put them back in when yeah yeah yeah, when you put them back in yeah when you put them back in they're in, in that corral. They'll circle that perimeter and just keep testing and testing and testing. See if I can escape. See if I can escape. See if I can get past this. What happens is cows that have bad fences actually end up giving about half the amount of milk as cows that have good fences. Why? Because as they're walking around testing those fences, they waste energy and they simply are not producing the milk. But the cows that test the good fences and go, oh, I can't get out. And guess what? Maybe this means that the uh, cougar can't get in and kill me. I feel safe. They sit down, chew their cud, and lactate and make almost twice as much milk. Now, the lesson for parents is, yes, it takes some work to keep some good firm boundaries, especially at first. It will be tested. But after that, everybody can kind of relax and be productive. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. Even though parents sometimes are a little hesitant to do boundaries, like, oh, my gosh, that looks so mean. You only have to do it for a short amount of time, and then the kid goes, oh, oh, okay, mom and dad are strong, mom and dad are benevolent, and I'm safe. Good, I can relax and be productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. I remember when I was about 12 years old learning to train horses, I remember if I let the horse get away with going towards the gate, trying to escape one time, one time. I'm going to have to spend three days right. training that horse not to go around. So it's just so much easier not to do it from the beginning. And the horse right. doesn't even know. Right. That's, a, that's an option. And they keep going. And the other thing is, I remember we went to France last year. And, you know, you kind of have this, there's this kind of stereotype that the French have this great culture and obedient children and things like that. And I was surprised at how many boundaries I saw being set by the French parents. Very firm Mm -hmm. boundaries. Mm -hmm. It was not, uh, oh, you know, 
the kids just don't ever know. You're in a restaurant, you're sitting here, you're quiet for three hours, Mm -hmm. you know, to the Mm four-year-old. And that's just what they did. Mm -hmm. And the kid knew. And I was just so surprised to see that. And um, I just thought that's interesting. Well, it is interesting also because um, the the French people have really low levels of ADHD in their kids. That's really interesting. It's kind of unique. And whether it's, you know, they just don't get on the bandwagon of diagnosing every little thing as ADHD, but they really don't. And it's kind of interesting. So kind of what I'm hearing from you is they have a culture of good, healthy boundaries with their kids. And so that's helpful, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And they also, it's kind of separate, but they have very, very good boundaries with screens. I didn't see any kids on screens. No kids anywhere on screens. No teenagers on screens. Wow. They do not sit around in line or at restaurants on screens. That's cool. It was really, it was, no, this is a time to connect Mm -hmm. and talk Mm -hmm. And well, and actually the author of this book that we love that we're recommending, Hold On to Your Kids, he said the same thing. His family spent time in Provence and that they saw that. They saw this community, this village, this adult children uh, interactions uh, as as a group that it was really profound, had profound effects. Yeah, the children did not just stay with their age group. Right. They were involved with all ages. Right, the whole community. Yeah, and so that's that's probably a note that we could close on is um, this idea that if you can have an extended family to also attach to, that's a good thing. Children can attach to multiple people, but they they need to attach. And it can give the parents a little respite. It's kind of like that. You need a village. Yeah. Why do you need a village? Gives, gives people a little break. It helps with modeling, right? If you can see grandma is is doing things a certain way and this has worked for her 12 children and her, you know, whatever, that's very helpful. It gives you hope. You're like, oh, okay, her kids actually turned out pretty well. All right, grandma, what's what's going on? Right. You know, how, how, how would you suggest to, to work with this? And and so the wisdom of extended family uh, and the, the in, innate love that extended family have that would be the ideal. That would be something to try to cultivate in some fashion. And th- the other thing that... Close, um, close good friends. Can yes. Also, if you have close uh, family a, friends. Right. A church congregation can be very, very useful that way. Neighbors that, that you trust, that you know very well. Um, but family is kind of the built-in one. And that's... But, but children can attach to multiple people. Let's talk a little bit about daycare. So the research shows that um, children who go to daycare can actually be securely attached. However, they're probably attaching to the daycare provider, okay? But the research shows that the the most securely attached kids that are in daycare are the ones that are in daycare the very most or the very least. The thing that's the most confusing for children is to be in a, a moderate amount of time where it's kind of like equal time, or, or um, you know, significant, significant blocks of time, but it's not enough for them to really securely attach to that caregiver. So just knowing that research is out there, that can be helpful for, for parents to decide, okay, if we want two parents that are earning money, how can we structure this so that either my child is, you know, being babysat by grandma a lot or being taken to the daycare institution a little bit. Either one of those is pretty good that, that can still be very, very secure for a child. The hardest is when it's an institution and it's taking a medium amount of time from the family. That's the most confusing for the children. That's so, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then you had one thought about the spontaneous uh, the attention. Oh, yeah. I loved this. So one way that we can 
you know, invite that attachment with babies and toddlers mm-hmm. is to spontaneously respond to them and be excited that they're just here and don't wait for them to ask for attention. So when they come in the room, oh, I'm so excited mm-hmm. you're here. Good morning. Big mm-hmm. hugs. Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is a way, a really easy way mm-hmm. to get that attachment. Right. Uh, right. Because uh, Dr. Newfield makes the case that if a child is so deprived of attention that he has to ask for it, then whatever attention you give really won't be enough. It's the attention that's offered before they are starving for it. Starving for it. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's a really good thing to know is catch your children being good. Catch your children even just being adorable. Just appreciate their adorableness. Yeah, before just, they even ask for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, that's a beautiful, that's a great way yeah. for toddlers to feel very valued and loved. And That's one of the things that I really try to do with my kids is t- together time. So I'll try to find 10 minutes a day mm-hmm. to be like, hey, I'm going to focus on mm-hmm. doing what you want to do. And I'll ask them, hey, do you want to do something together? What would you want to do? Mm-hmm. And most of the time it's playing a game mm-hmm. or reading a book. Mm-hmm. And those are easy things to do. Mm-hmm. And that's usually what they want. And sometimes it's just cuddling and talking. Mm-hmm. And they just eat it up, mm-hmm. especially when I offer it first. And then our day goes so well. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's Yeah. And just, you know, those routines, bathing and feeding and the tucking in and the kissing and the all that. Very, very important. And um, you do a great job, though, Amelia. Hmm. Your kids are awesome. They are. Well, have we have we done enough damage today? It's pretty good. <laughs> it's been great conversation. I mean, I think we've had lots of specifics and yeah. really cool stuff. Yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. always learning a ton. Sure. So Yeah, so am I. It's mm-hmm. all good. All right. Well, it's been a joy. And uh, we will uh, we'll have a link to this book, Hold On to Your Kids, by Dr. Gordon Neufeld. We both feel like we wish we had had it when we were uh, younger moms. Mm-hmm. Everybody that I have read it, say the same thing. I wish I'd had this as a young mom. So please go out and get it, read it, and let it really sink into your heart. So, All right. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. See you next week. Yes. Find more from us at dashintolearning.com for all things educational and learn more about Dash Into Happy, our family-friendly social-emotional learning program. Thanks for being part of Families with Dash. Disclaimer, the information and advice posted on the Dash Into Learning, Dash Into Happy, and Into Happy sites and podcasts is for educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional, medical, mental health, legal, or other professional assistance. Call your medical or mental health professional or 911 for all emergencies. Joan Landis, Amelia Murdoch are not liable for any advice or information provided on the account Dash Into Happy, Dash Into Learning, Families with Dash, or Into Happy.